Well, if you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And, and as a reminder, if, uh, if you don't have a, a Bible of your own or even a copy of the, the translation we use, the ESV, we invite you to take one. You'll find it on the table uh, out the back double doors on the way out. Please take one with our blessing. This morning we pick up our series uh, on the life of Abraham in Genesis 18. Just a phenomenal passage. Uh, Let's read uh, verses 1 uh, through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he, this is Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram, Abraham went, uh, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door, tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you would make uh, your word a swift word, going from the ear to the heart and the heart to the lips to our conversation, that you would, just as you caused the rain to come and bring and sprout forth new life, that you would cause your word to achieve the purposes for which you sent it. O Lord, uphold us and grant us your grace. By your Spirit, grant us unction and anointing that you might change us, that we might become more like our Savior, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard of a deist? Do you know this phrase? A deist or deism? A deist is someone who believes that God exists, but that God isn't a personal God or a knowable God. That God made the world and stepped back and let it run. It's the old phrase of a a watchmaker. That a watchmaker makes a watch, he winds it up, and then he steps aside and lets it run. There are many people in our world who are deists, but it used to be a very popular modern philosophy of the day. and basically says that, hey, we can explain why there's order in this world, but we don't want a personal God, and we especially don't want a God we're accountable to. 
But you know that many of our founding fathers were deists. There are many wonderful Bible-believing Christians too, but, but many of them, like Thomas Jefferson and others, uh, were indeed deists. Abraham, not a deist. Right? As we look at our text today, the idea that God is not a personal God, blown out of the water. The idea that God doesn't intervene in our lives, blown out of the water. Also, the idea that there's a God to whom we are accountable, also blown out of the water. A lot of times we act like deists, don't we? At least functionally. You know, we've accepted our saviors, our, we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're saved. And, and then, oftentimes, though, we live day to day like God has nothing or very little to do with our lives, or we especially don't believe that God can do the impossible. Well, today, we see both of those things blown out of the water. As God comes and visits His people, intervenes, and tells them He can do the impossible. Our text picks up sometime not too long after our text from last week. Some time has elapsed, but certainly not more than a few weeks. The action doesn't begin until verse 2, but in verse 1 we have this summary of what is going to happen in our text today and in the ones in the coming weeks. And we read this in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. It was customary in those days to work in the morning. Sun up comes and you go to work. And then when it gets hot, you take a, a meal and a siesta. right? And then when it starts to cool down, you begin to work again. Well, it appears that Abraham had just settled down to take a rest or had woken up and, and bam, he had these three men standing in front of him. Already we see there's something special about these three men as the text describes them because no, no animal had been disturbed, no servant had intercepted them. Abraham looked up and they were suddenly there. Now, I'm going to spoil a surprise for you. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what's going on here. Uh, these three men, one is the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, God Himself, and the two are angels. One commentator that I like, but he's the only commentator out of the six I read this week who said it, uh, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, said that he believes this was Jesus before He was born of Mary. I like that, but we can't prove it. Certainly nothing in the text would indicate that. But this is the Lord. What I do know is that God came to visit Abraham, and Abraham knew it. We see this starting already in verse 2 with his reaction. What does he do? He runs. He runs. I remember my great-grandmother. She died when she was 98, almost 99. And I think she was about 96. And I said something to her that I'd never seen her run. Now, you know, I was uh, middle school. I didn't know any better. And I'm thankful that the end of the day did not involve a broken hip. But I remember seeing my great-grandmother mutter, Elva Allback, uh, running on the uneven ground. And I still remember this to this day. Why? Because 96-year-old women shouldn't run, right? <laughs> and that's what Abraham's doing. He's about to be 100. 100-year-old men, let me just tell you, in case, in case you're 100, you probably shouldn't run a whole lot of places. 
Well, he runs. And, and men of the, in those days, especially the patriarchs, they didn't run anywhere. It was undignified. In fact, they wore long robes like mine. And in order for me to run in my robe, I've got I've to lift up my skirt. right? And, and that's what they did. They, they had to run. It was very undignified. You could see his ankles. Horror. And then he bows down. He bows down to him. Now, the word bow down, it can mean just bow down like you would do to a king. But it's also translated elsewhere as to worship. To worship. And so what does he say? He says in verse 3, O Lord, if, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, we, we must remember that, that God had given Abraham the promised land. and He wasn't anybody's servant on earth. And yet he puts himself in the position of a servant, calling himself a servant, and then using this really important phrase, this really important word to speak to one of the three. You've heard it before, is the word Adonai. And it means, my Lord. It's only used in the entire Old Testament of one person, and that is God. It is spelled differently if it refers to a human. Abraham recognizes he is in the presence of, these are some of the names of God we've seen already in our study of Abraham, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Yahweh, Lord, His personal name, His covenant name, El Elyon, Most High God, and El Roy, All-Seeing God, or this God who sees. He understands that he is in the presence, not of a man, but of God. This is called a theophany, a theophany. God is not a man. We learned that from 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 29. It quite, quite simply says, God is not a man. Uh, by the way, if the Mormons show up, that's the one you want to use. They believe God is a man. Just tell them 1 Samuel 11, verse 29. God is not a man. The Bible says so. It's a theophany. God appeared as a man to uh, Abraham. And this is what makes the incarnation so amazing, that God would take to himself a human nature, the incarnation in Jesus, which, which we'll get to in a minute. Well, Abraham asks these three individuals to stay, showing them hospitality. This was super important in the ancient Near East. And he offers what is needed in the middle of the heat of the day, um, shade, water to drink, and to wash their feet. Although I wonder if their feet were dirty. They just appeared. And then he gives them, offers them food. He actually says, hey, sit down, and they agree, and I'll bring you a morsel of bread when someone comes, important comes to your house, and you say, oh, just come by for a simple meal. What do you mean by that simple meal? Right? It's not a simple meal, is it? This is not a simple meal. He says, I'll bring you a morsel of bread. And so he runs to Sarah and tells her to get three seahs of the finest flour. Now, I know you probably don't have any measuring cups with sia written on them at your house. This is five gallons. This is a lot of bread. Right? This is not a snack. This is not a morsel. I don't know how many people, five gallons of the finest flour. By the way, this, the Hebrew word here indicates a flour that is used for two purposes. In a king's house and, get ready for this, offerings to God. Go and get the finest flour, five gallons of it. Make cakes. That's not a, a sweet cake. It's a, a round loaf, a disc, a unleavened like chapati bread or naan. And he runs then and selects a USDA prime calf, right? And he has it slaughtered and prepared and cooked quickly. You know, when you kill a calf and you cook a calf, is that a quick thing? I've never done that before, but you let me know. 
Then he gathers everything together, along with the customary curds or yogurt. This would have been uh, served alongside bread. This is a customary uh, food. And he puts them before them, Yahweh and his two angels, and they eat. And Abraham stands by while they ate it. Now, now in a minute, we're going to see that the Lord shows up and he's coming. One of the reasons he's come is to tell some really good news to Abraham, but especially to Sarah. But let's not miss the blessing that has just happened. That God has come and he has visited his people. He has visited Abraham, his, his chosen vessel, through whom he will bless all the nations, pointing ultimately to Christ. The Gentiles are brought in, and all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever, um, you ever had someone fun come to your house? Someone important that you've anticipated for a long time? You know, there's some people that if they were to drive anywhere near Bruton, I would just drop whatever I'm doing and go meet them. And we would sit for hours. Surely you have those people in your life too. And so here is Abraham, right? A sinner, just like you and me, saved by grace, just like you and me. And it reminds me of Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is a better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And here is Abraham serving literal food to Yahweh who eats as in a th- in this theophany. To be in the presence of God is not always a pleasant thing. It's a fearful thing, actually. It depends on whether you're a friend or an enemy of God. James 2.23 tells us about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? Has Jesus paid for your sins? Have you accepted what Christ has done on the cross for you? Are you a friend or, according to Romans chapter 5, are you still an enemy of God? Now, if you're a believer, you're not only a friend of God. John 1 says that you're a child of God. You know, this is really a unique uh, occurrence in the Old Testament. The only parallel I know of is in Exodus 24 where Moses and the elders feast with God on the mountain. It's it's an amazing passage. You should check it out sometime. There there should be a sermon on that, by the way, on on our website when we went through Exodus. It's a phenomenal passage. But this passage and that passage, they ultimately point us to something else. They point us to the coming of Christ. See, the the Lord visited Abraham as part of His plan to build Abraham up and to be the father of a great people. And one day, Abraham's most important heir, his true seed, his true offspring, the Lord Jesus, would come. And in our incarnation, when God became man, fully God, fully man, we have the dwelling of God on earth with His people, and not just for a meal, but for 33 years. For 33 years, He visited His people to achieve their salvation and to make the offer of salvation to all those who would trust in Christ. When God appeared to Abraham as a traveling sojourner, it was only for a time. But when Jesus Christ came, He took to Himself a human nature, and He still has it. He died and was buried and was raised and bodily ascended into heaven. As one church father says, there now sits on the throne of God in heaven the dust of man. 
when the Son of God returned, it's not like God left us. Indeed, on the day of Pentecost, He sent forth His Holy Spirit in power, and now the Holy Spirit, God Himself, dwells within every Christian. God has always been with His people. The Old Testament's real clear on this. Have I not, forsake, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Um, that's not how it goes. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you may go. But the more intimate presence of God within the New Testament people of God, the Holy Spirit, this is something Abraham could only dream of. When Christ came the first time to visit His people. That's what He called it, by the way. In the triumphal entry, He mourns and He weeps when He says, if you'd only know the day of your visitation. When He came to visit us, He came as a babe. But one day He will come again to judge the nations, those who are His friends, those who are His people who have called on Christ, those who become Christians, He will welcome into the new heavens and the new earth and no longer for a visit, right? No longer for a visit. Have you ever had those times, someone you just love and you don't see often, and they finally have to leave and it's a tearing away? And so it will be with Jesus, but we'll never be torn away. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. May that day come soon. Well, after the meal, the heavenly visitors reveal part of the reason for their visit is they ask where Sarah is, Abraham's wife. Now, according to the customs of the day, she was not present with the men at, at the meal. She was in the tent, but she was able to overhear. And so we read in verse 10, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Notice that one of the three is now explicitly identified as the Lord Yahweh. It says, and the Lord. All caps refers to Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, the Lord had already told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a child, his son, over in chapter 17, but Sarah had not been there. And now she hears the Lord, and what does she do? She laughs. And she has this inner monologue, which is recorded in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? What's she saying? I'm old and decrepit. That's the Hebrew for that, right? She, she is old. In fact, the text is going to tell us right after that, they're old. And not only that, she has gone through menopause, and even before she did that, she was barren. It's, it's clear from the Hebrew, not necessarily from the English, that this was an internal monologue. She didn't, she didn't say this out loud. Abraham, too, had laughed. Do you remember that from 17? That, that he had laughed, too. But, but God does not rebuke Abraham. It seems that his, his laugh was more of, that's amazing. Hers, though, is different. Hers seems to be that she must have disbelieved Abraham. You know, he he had to have told her this already. Hey, babe, we're going to have a child. No, 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 that's funny. (laughs) And now that she has heard the Lord say it, what does she do? She continues to disbelieve. Why? Because from a human perspective, this was impossible. She was worn out. 
She was tired. She was old. From a human perspective, this was impossible. There's no way she could have a child. God calls her out in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Sarah's going to respond in two ways to this. First, according to 15, she was afraid. But also she denied that she laughed. Why was she afraid? I think it could be one of two reasons or both. One is that she finally figured out who this was. Or two, and two, she realized that God could hear her thoughts. How do you feel about that? That God knows your thoughts? It's a lot easier to guard our actions, isn't it? But our thoughts, whew, that's a tough one. Psalm 139 tells us, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Did you know that God is omniscient? He knows all things. Not just what is said aloud, but what goes through our innermost thoughts. Now you should know for the unbeliever that this is not a good thing. I mean, it's good in that God is good. His power is good. But we, are, we will be held account, accountable for every stray thought. And for the believer, too, this means that we have to be accountable to God, right? And to ask for forgiveness when our thoughts go astray, which is what? All the time. But it's also a comfort. We shouldn't miss the comfort here. It means that He knows our greatest fears, our insecurities, even when we don't admit them to Him. He knows the things that scare us and keep us up at night. He He knows the scenes that we allow to keep playing in our heads over and over and over again, both the things we've done and and perhaps the things done to us. He knows all those things. He knows the feelings of shame and the, the memories of hurts long ago. And guess what? He still loves you. He delights in you. He cherishes you. Because Christ has paid for any and all sin that are involved with those thoughts. But the Lord also reveals that He is omnipotent. It's not just that He's omniscient, knows all things. He's also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We've already seen that with El Shaddai, God Almighty. We see this in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Don't you love that kind of rhetorical question? (laughs) The answer is not yes. Okay, just let you know. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The one who made the heavens and the earth by merely speaking them to existence. The one who upholds them by the word of his power. The one who had delivered Noah through the flood. The one who had confused the languages of the peoples at Babel. Do we really think he can't open the womb of Sarah? He's done a lot harder things. You can quickly see how we can get to Jesus out of this passage, can't you? In Luke 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she, though a virgin will have a son, and this will be a very special son, the Messiah. And that her relative, her old relative Elizabeth, who was barren, will also have a child. And then he says in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's a fun tie-in here because the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, it uses the same word for too hard in our passage for impossible, that Gabriel uses speaking to Mary. It's the same word. Very much a tie-in. Was it too impossible for God to cause the the womb of a barren woman to conceive or to cause a a virgin 
to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and that Mary would conceive a child who was both God and man, no, it wasn't too hard. See, God isn't done with hard things, is He? Sometimes we believe that, though. And this is where we become functional deists, that God just kind of winds up the world and lets it run and He's not involved with our lives and He's not doing big, important things anymore. That's just a lie. God is in the business of doing hard, quote-unquote, impossible things. Nothing's too hard for God. It turns out that too hard in verse 14 in the Hebrew can also be translated as too wonderful, as in it's too good to be true. The Father has sent forth His Holy Spirit who is God Himself to dwell inside each and every one of us, and there's nothing too hard for God in our lives. I mean, He forgave me of my sins. He cast him as far as the east is from the west. That is an amazing thing by itself. The laugh that Sarah laughed was filled with hopelessness and despair. Have you laughed in the same way? Hopelessness and despair? Did you know that God is powerful enough to raise up the dead on the last day? It seems so final when we pour the last bit of ground onto the casket, doesn't it? God's not done. He's going to raise the dead. He's already done it. Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. And He has raised our hearts to faith. He has given us new life. He has taken those who are dead and made them alive in Christ. Did you know that God can guarantee that God is powerful enough to guarantee that when we die, we will awaken His presence? That's a mighty powerful thing. In our death, God's just beginning with us. Did you know that God is still all-powerful and knowing, all-knowing? And just like in Sarah's day, and for His friends, right? For those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, He is in the habit of doing what the world says is hopeless. He heals broken marriages. Any, any marriages that need healing here? I would imagine. He gives hope to the despondent. Anybody despondent? He heals the brokenhearted. He breaks the bonds of addiction. He answers prayers uttered in desperation. He restores ailing bodies. He redeems our lives from the pits. He crowns us with steadfast mercy, and He calls you His own. This is the kind of God that we have. And far from being an impersonal God, He has sent His very own, His only begotten Son, Whoever, who, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And, and the Lord Jesus will raise Him up on the last day. Abraham wasn't a deist. Sarah wasn't a deist as she held Isaac a year later. Can you imagine the joy that that must have brought to her heart? She would have laughed that day too, but laughed with joy and in faith and in praise. Mary wasn't a deist. She responded in faith to Gabriel's message. She did well, but certainly as she would hold the God-man Jesus, she was not a deist. The one who had come into the world, God Himself, to save us from our sins. The question then is, why do we often so often live like deists? Living as if God had not visited His people. Living as if God doesn't dwell within us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Why do we live as though one day God will not just visit His people, but set up His dwelling place on earth, the new heavens and new earth, with His people forever? 
Why do we live as if there's no hope for situations in our lives and those around us? God is all-powerful, and He is all-knowing. My friend, he calls, us up. he calls us to believe those things. May He calls us to believe those things all the more today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that no, nothing is too hard for you. There's nothing impossible with God. O oh Lord, calls us to live in your presence daily, seeking you, rejoicing, the sealing and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.